The last time I was with you, I looked at the healing of blind Bartimaeus at the end of Mark 10, and I just want to go on into Mark 11, because it's a wonderful uh, passage of Scripture, just as Jesus is heading into that into Jerusalem uh, for that, that, that the last week. And the heading in chapter 11 is the triumphal entry. So let me read from verse uh, 1 down to the end of verse 11, the triumphal entry. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, well, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And we pray that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's just take a moment and ask the Lord together to open our hearts and our minds. Father, we're really grateful that we can come together this morning around your word. And we come, O oh Lord, and our hearts in truth are hungry. We, we really want to catch a glimpse of Jesus. We want to be reminded of how amazing and wonderful our Savior is. And so we pray that as we look at this passage, which is undoubtedly very familiar to most of us, we just ask that you would enable us, as it were, to travel back in time so that we might... Um, Smell the smells and hear the sounds and, and just for a little while, just live in the text, O oh Lord. But above everything, we pray that the text might live in us and that our time together might help us to worship you in a way that will bring a smile to your face. We ask these things, Father, as we say thank you in the beautiful and the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We, we start this passage in, it's a most marvelous passage. It's about the Passover. And Jerusalem at the Passover was a time of tremendous activity. The Jews were delighted to celebrate the Passover, and the Romans, the military authorities occupying Jerusalem, they weren't quite so happy. They despaired a little bit because there were thousands of devout Jews from all over the world who had arrived in the holy city. And their hearts were filled with uh, excitement and with nationalistic fervor. 
Remember, of course, the Passover was the Jews celebrating God's delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. So it was a time of great excitement, and the population of Jerusalem just about tripled during the feast, making it necessary for the Roman military units to be on special alert because they lived with the possibility of some kind of political agitation, some kind of move uh, whereby folks would rebel, uh, maybe even kill a Roman official or incite a riot. And there was always, of course, uh, potential with the Jews falling out between themselves because that's what often happened. But you'll remember that Barabbas was in prison. Why? Because he'd committed murder insurrection. He'd been rebelling against the Roman occupation. Well, into this situation steps God's servant, the Lord Jesus. In less than a week, he would be crucified. The religious leaders were plotting uh, together how they might kill him because so many people were believing in him. A little while earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and uh, it, it said in um, John 12, verses 17 and 18, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the people who had witnessed this miracle, this raising of Lazarus, were so impacted by it that they began to talk to other people about it. So the whole of Jerusalem was filled with people who were talking about Jesus and about the amazing miracle that he had performed. And the Passover was very close. And because it was to celebrate the setting free of God's people from Egypt all those years before, there were some folks thinking, well, if Jesus has all this power, maybe, just maybe, he'll use his power to bring freedom to us today. And people were getting very, very excited. What would the authorities do if Jesus was to make a move? Well, let's focus on the text, because that's where we get our information from. And the text tells us some interesting things. The first thing we notice from the text is that there was very deliberate preparation by the Lord for this uh, event. Verses 1 and 2, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever written, untie it and bring it here. Well, we wonder how did Jesus know that the donkey was tied up in that particular place? And of course the text doesn't tell us. We, we don't know how Jesus knew, he just knew. And verse three uh, tells us that Jesus said, if anyone asks you, oh, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. Well, we know what happened. They went into, the, into Jerusalem and they found the colt tied, just as Jesus had said. And as they began to untie the colt, uh, some people who were there said, what, what are you doing? And they explained, as Jesus had told them to, 
that the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. Well, the owners let the donkey go. It's likely that they'd heard about Jesus and they reckoned that they could trust him to return the donkey. I think they probably felt honored by his request. Now we know, don't we, that Jesus was working to the Father's timetable. He had carefully ordered everything. The day had been selected in the ages of eternity past. The triumphal entry on Sunday, on the Sunday, would precipitate his crucifixion on the Good Friday, followed by his burial and then his resurrection on the Easter Sunday morning. Why did Jesus choose a donkey to ride into Jerusalem, especially one that had never been ridden before? Well, his purpose was to go public. Now, that wasn't something that Jesus had done before. Up until this point in time, Jesus had shunned publicity. You remember when people wanted to crown him king, Jesus just slipped away. But now he was going public, and he was riding a donkey. Well, we wonder, why was he riding a donkey? Were there no horses around? After all, a horse is kind of more noble than a donkey, don't you think? A donkey is just really a beast of burden. But actually, in Jesus' day, a donkey was deemed fit for a king to use. But there's another reason why Jesus rode a donkey. You see, 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah uh, prophesied that the Messiah would come riding a donkey. Look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and that means gentle, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, now, what's amazing about this, in my eyes, is that Jesus consciously fulfilled the prophecy to the letter. In fact, he exceeded it, for he chose a colt upon which no one had ever ridden. And that was because in, in ancient times, when uh, an animal was, was devoted to a sacred task, it couldn't be used for any other task. So here was a donkey that nobody had ever ridden before. Now, I don't know if you know anything about donkeys. I know a little bit more about horses than donkeys. I wouldn't want to sit on a horse that had never been ridden before. I don't suppose I'd want to sit on a donkey that had been, never been ridden before. But remember that Jesus is the Lord of creation. So he sat on this donkey. And what's very interesting is that as far as I know, the donkey is the only animal in the world that has a cross on its back. Every donkey has a cross on its back. Now, I don't know why. There are some folks who say that because the donkey was involved in this uh, triumphal procession into Jerusalem. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe we'll find out when we get to glory. But I think it's interesting that every donkey has a cross on its back. Well, in fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus accomplished two purposes. First of all, he declared himself to be the Messiah, 
by fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And then secondly, he challenged the religious leaders. You see, this set in motion the official plot that led to his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. The Jewish leaders had decided not to arrest him during the feast, but God had determined otherwise. The date of his crucifixion had been fixed in the ages of eternity past. The Lamb of God would have to die at the Passover because the Passover was itself a picture of what one day the Lamb of God would do for his people. Do you remember the Passover? The, the, the lamb was slain and the blood was placed on the doorpost and the lintel above and around the door. And when the angel of God passed over, he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. And that's exactly what happens. The blood of the sacrifice of Christ is applied to our lives. And the, the symbolic, the angel of judgment passes over. When I see the blood, I will pass over. This was a, 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 a beautiful, beautiful picture. I just love the way Zechariah describes Jesus, lowly and gentle, riding on a donkey. I think it's wonderful that Jesus went into Jerusalem peacefully, isn't it? 750 years earlier, Isaiah talks about, about Jesus. He says in chapter 9, that very well-known prof prophecy, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Jesus comes riding a donkey, gently, gentle, coming peacefully. And remember, after his birth, the angels appeared and they announced Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And now Jesus rides a donkey coming peacefully into Jerusalem as the king. The prince of peace comes as the king. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and gently, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is the king who said and still says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not you might find rest for your souls, but you will find rest for your souls. So there we have the first point, which is the kind of the deliberate preparation working to the timetable that the Father had laid out for him. And then we move on and we think about the triumphal entry. Look at verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Of course, all eyes were focused on Jesus. Not only did the exuberant followers place their clothing on the donkey as a saddle, some people took off their robes and actually placed them on the ground uh, so that Jesus could ride the donkey over them. And I think what they were doing was they were indicating their willingness for him to have everything and even for him to trample on their property if that's what he chose to do. 
And they did this repeatedly. So I can just see one man taking off his cloak, putting it on the ground, and Jesus riding the donkey across the cloak, and the man reaching out, getting it, and then making his way through the crowd, going ahead of the donkey and putting his cloak down again so Jesus could ride over it again. They did this repeatedly as the procession moved towards Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. Those who went ahead... And those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Well, that comes from Psalm 118. And interestingly, it's mentioned in all of the four gospels. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, just imagine you were a Roman soldier or a centurion and you were looking on and you were a little bit uncomfortable about this nationalistic fervor that was building. And you wondered, was there going to be some difficulty? Well, we know that the Romans were experts at parades and uh, at official public events. They, they were big into the ceremonial. Well, we call this the triumphal entry. I, I don't think they would have used that term because for them, a Roman triumph was something indeed to behold. When a Roman general uh, finished a campaign in which he had annihilated an enemy, he came back to Rome and he was welcomed with an official parade. And the official parade uh, was something to behold. In part of the parade would have been some of the uh, trophies that he'd caught, some of the uh, prisoners that he'd, uh, uh, that he'd caught. Not the ordinary soldiers, they would have executed them, but the important ones. And the victorious general would have ridden in a golden chariot. The priests would have been there burning incense in his honor. And the people would have shouted praise to his name. And as the procession entered into Rome, it would have gone to the arena. And when it got to the arena, there the crowd would have been cheering. And as they were entertained by the captives having to fight wild animals. That was a Roman triumph. The Lord's triumphal entry was nothing like that, but it was a triumph just the same because God had anointed him king and savior. But his conquest was spiritual, not military. What's really interesting is this, that for the Roman general to be awarded a triumph, a Roman triumph, he had to have killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. At least 5,000. Now, in a few weeks' time, the gospel would conquer 5,000 people. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, there were 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And very shortly afterwards, another 2,000 came. Isn't that interesting? The Romans would only award a, 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 a triumph to, to a general who had killed 5,000 of the opposition, and yet here Christ comes and his triumph would be a victory of love over hatred, of truth over error, and of life over death. But something else of profound significance happened as Jesus approached Jerusalem, and the details are recorded in the Gospel 
of, of, of Luke. Uh, I've just put, entitled it, The King's Tears. You see, the road to Jerusalem that they were walking down and Jesus was riding this donkey down, at one point it goes into a hollow. And you walk for a little while and then it comes up out of the hollow and crests a ridge. And at the crest of the ridge, you see Jerusalem, the entire city laid out in front of you. And Jesus crested the ridge and he saw the city. And it says in Luke 19, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. With the panorama of the city in front of him, Jesus paused and he began to weep. Please understand, and the text is very specific, that these were not the quiet, gentle tears that he wept when he was in the garden, uh, the tomb of Lazarus, when he saw Martha and Mary breaking their hearts and he burst into tears and wept with them. Those tears were gentle. Oh, they were real and they poured down his cheeks. But this was different. The word used is different. Jesus wasn't qu quietly crying. His body was just heaving as his soul was in agony as he looked over the city. He wept. He howled. Now, I think the crowd would have been absolutely stunned. They probably stopped and stopped even shouting, looking at Jesus as he was just howling. Luke says, Jesus said, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus looked forward and he saw the proud, unrepentant city of Jerusalem reduced to a pile of blood-soaked rubble. Forty years later, the Roman legions would besiege the city and ultimately destroy it. Josephus, that historian, said, and I quote, Caesar ordered the whole city and temple to be razed to the ground. The wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No ground for believing that it, it had ever been inhabited. Such was the end to which the frenzy of revolutionaries brought Jerusalem, that splendid city of worldwide renown. Well, Josephus called to Jesus and his followers revolutionaries. Jesus saw all this. He saw what was going to happen, and he wailed. And what's fascinating is that in these little verses, we get a glimpse of the heart of our God. And what a glimpse it is. You see, this is how God sorrows over people who missed their day. Jesus said, if you, even you, had only known on this day, not tomorrow, but on this day, what would bring you peace? 
let me tell you that as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, when he saw people focused on all sorts of other things, so perhaps he weeps today as he looks at us. Because it may very well be that there's one person watching this. And you don't know on this day what will bring you peace. How very, very sad that was. What brings us peace? Well, there are two things that we need to know. And the first is this repentance. And repentance simply means an about turn, an about turn. You see, we're born in sin. Nobody ever had to sit us down and teach us how to tell lies or to be selfish. We manage that all on our own, isn't that right? See, our problem is, is sin in our hearts. That's, we, were, we were born that way. It goes back to the original sin. But God says, listen, repent. That just means an about turn. Instead of turning away from God, turn and face God. Recognize that sin is something, not just something that uh, an angry pastor invented to shout his congregation about. That sin is something that breaks the heart of God. And that's why he wants us to think differently about it, to turn away from it. In order to turn to God, repentance. And the second thing is that we take a step of faith in the direction of God. I have a friend and I've been, I go fishing with him and I share faith with him. He's not a believer yet. And I'm reminded of um, a parable. I don't know if I've told you this before. If I have, please forgive me. This is my great age. Uh, a parable that was, was, was written by a 13th century monk about a, a, a donkey. And the donkey was hungry. But there was a pile of straw, a pile of hay over here and another pile of hay over there. And the donkey kind of couldn't work out which to go to. So he, he, he just stayed there until he starved to death. And there are some folks who say, well, I want to understand all about God. And then I'll make up my mind. But the truth is, faith is involved in this. You, you don't understand in order to believe. You believe in order to understand. I can remember a very lovely university lecturer from Edinburgh used to come over to Finlay every Sunday morning for several years. She's very intellectual and she wanted to she wanted to believe but she wanted to understand and I used to laugh at her and say you gotta you gotta reach out in faith. You gotta believe in order to understand. If you're gonna try to understand before believing you'll never get there. And finally uh, she got to the point of just saying, well, there are too many coincidences for it to be coincidental. So without understanding a great deal, she just said, God, I, I just need to come to you and I need you to do in my life what Michael tells me the word says you will do. And it was 
through that prayer that she began to understand. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to repent and he wants us to take a step of faith. And as one hymn writer wrote these beautiful words, the son of God in tears, the wandering angels see, be thou astonished, O my soul, he shed those tears for thee. I think that's just remarkable that God should look at us. And most of us are really insignificant. In fact, you know, if we were to disappear tomorrow, maybe half a dozen folks or maybe, maybe 20 folks, maybe 50 folks would think, oh dear, that's really sad. But then they'd forget about us or most of them. So our going wouldn't really mean a whole lot to a whole, whole lot of people. But you know, we are so precious and valuable to God that he looks at us and that he loves us. And I wonder, is he weeping over somebody this morning? I think that's just marvelous. The tears of Christ reveal the infinite value of your soul. And as he wept over Jerusalem, so he weeps today over souls who have not yet turned to him. And if God weeps over souls who haven't turned to him, don't you think he smiles when he looks down at those of us who have turned to him? Yeah, he sees us tripping up and slipping every day, because we do. But that's why Jesus died on the cross. And the wonder of wonders is that all our sin is forgiven. Even the sin that we have still to commit tomorrow, it's all forgiven. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't it? It says in Genesis that the Lord looks down and he sees the wickedness in the earth and his heart is filled with pain. I am amazed that our God would make himself vulnerable to feel pain that we could cause him. But if God can feel pain, Surely he can also feel joy. And if he can feel joy, that means it's possible for us to bring a smile of pleasure to his face. And isn't that what we want to do this morning? Because we worship him, we honor him, we love him, and we want to love him more. So I just want to pray for just a moment now, that the Lord would, in his mercy, take these things and lock them in our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are so very kind. It is just the most wonderful thing that people like us can come into your presence. And we bless you that we've been able to look at your word together. And Lord, we're absolutely enthralled by the thought that, that we mean so much to you that Jesus would weep over us. And Lord, our, our heart's desire is to bring a smile of pleasure to your face. So would you please help us this week, wherever we go, to really place our hands in yours and to walk with you 
and we pray that you would be pleased. May that be so, Lord. And, and if there's somebody this morning and they're struggling for whatever reason, we pray that in a very special way, your Holy Spirit would minister lovingly and gently, bringing real encouragement to every head bowed in your presence. We ask these things, Father, as we say thank you, in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.